Hi, this is Carol In, the new host of Analyze Asia, the bi-weekly podcast dedicated to dissecting the powers of business, technology, and media in Asia. Now, before diving into this week's episode, I'd like to thank everyone who attended our fifth anniversary live show in Singapore on September 5th. Special thanks to our special guests, Isaac Tay, Lisa Ankle, and Simon Camp for making it a fantastic show. Now, today we have Joyce Yang, the founder of Global Coin Research, joining us again, which means we're talking about crypto in Asia. Now, Joyce is a frequent guest on the show, so welcome back, Joyce. Thanks for having me again. Now, I really enjoyed the last episode where you shared your personal journey of attending Harvard, your career path of working for CICC, and eventually finding your way to crypto. And just telling all the listeners, I think it will be a delightful listen to any young folks, especially who are looking for some inspirations. Now, Joyce, since last coming onto the show, what have you been up to? Yeah, since the last time we I came on the show, it's been a while, and lots of things have happened in the crypto world. You know, for every month in the crypto world, it feels like years because so many things are happening. And obviously, we're talking about a global phenomenon, so things are happening all over the world. You know, some of the notable events I think folks could find interest in are like the cancel dinner with Justin Sun and Warren Buffett. Uh, Justin Sun is a cryptocurrency project founder. The project's named Tron, and he held a $4.6 million bid for Warren Buffett's dinner. And that ended up getting canceled because him getting run into the kind of the rubbing the wrong shoulders for on the regulatory folks in China. So I encourage folks to check that out. And then we also have seen Libra and China's digital currency making moves. So those are really interesting highlights that I would love to chat more about. And here at Global Coin Research, we actually launched the small handbook to Asia cryptocurrency, where we laid out the crypto landscape and the ecosystems in various countries in Asia and identifying the high quality communities there and the regulatory environment for folks who are interested in learning more. Additionally, actually, since we spoke, Global Coin Research has announced two more services that we're going into. So as folks who have heard me speak before know that we have always been focusing on Asia and kind of bridging the information gap for our English speaking readers with the rest of Asia. You know, I think the gap between Asia and the rest of the world continues to be very prevalent and relevant in crypto, while Asia, you know, I think in the last six months has even stood out more so as a headquarters to some of the largest exchanges and the trading activities and also the mining happenings that are taking place on Bitcoin and Ethereum. So while ultimately we think that Asia is very important, it's still not very much understood by many folks. And we're getting so many inbound demands from customers and projects who are interested in engaging us through our advisory services. So we actually have launched an advisory service officially to help those folks who are coming in and committing to growing and developing a decentralized solution long-term to help them build out that uh, go-to-market strategy and kind of form strategic thinking around global presence. So we did that so to capitalize on you know what we have built so far, but at the same time, I think we believe in this global phenomenon taking place and that we think there's a lot of untapped potential in Asia. So that's one of the services we offered that we just launched. And then another service that we just announced is actually Venture Fund under the Global Coin brand. So given our exposure in the crypto and Asia space, 
we believe that we have a very unique perspective and network that most funds in the States, for example, do not have. Crypto is inherently global. So we think that there are a lot of synergies across our platforms that we could help our portfolio companies. Of course, you know, I think we're treading a little bit on the, on the edges when we're, you know, at a research-based company, but we make our disclosures very clear and folks can check that out anywhere uh, on our ethics page of what we kind of are involved into and who we work with. So for that, um, we actually work with now projects in the technology space, two namely uh, called Starkware and Satora in our advisory services. And we recently just invested into this project called Near Protocol. So that's, that's a lot kind of what we've been up to. So I think, you know, I'll leave it to you to kind of go from there. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have been very busy, but congratulations on the advisory service and also the venture fund. Now, go back a little bit. So you talked about how you guys published the Smart Handbook to Asia Cryptocurrency on local ecosystems, trends, and regulations. That was published in July. And how did you and your team put the handbook together? Yeah, so we have noticed there has been a need for a primer in this space because folks who usually think about going to Asia, you know, let me give you an example, a stereotypical example of an executive who wants to venture out to Asia and he's based out of the States. He really thinks that there's a lot of potential and market to explore for his project. You name it, either if that's a token or even just a software solution, but they have a lot of potential customers in Asia because a lot of the exchanges are there or a lot of the mining companies are there. Or a lot of the money is there as well. They think that there's a lot of potential and they will often approach Asia like, you know, they're thinking, you know, which country should I be going to? I have no idea. From an outside observer, it seems all very similar to them. You know, they don't really know how to actually plan their strategies. And at the same time, they also don't know who to actually contact because there's so many players who potentially mislead lead you into a scammy down path into that country and then your potential market approach could be completely spoiled and, and ruined just by you know having the wrong contact. So what we realize is that this handbook is so important to just guide people in the right direction as a first step. So what we did is we surveyed 70 experts from the field across 10 countries and these local people who actually live and breathe crypto in those communities, you know, locally in those countries, and they come from our recommended trusted network. And I think that's super important because crypto right now is a very narrative-based base in the sense that, you know, many times people don't understand the projects. They just go in for the hype. And that's understandable, right? Because the technology is actually very opaque very novel but at the same time you know there's a lot of premium that could potentially gain from accessing the tokens or getting to the ICOs early or whatnot at least that's what people believe and what we think that you know with this handbook you can actually get led into the right communities and kind of build the right type of ecosystem you know focus on technology and gather the right type of mindset of folks who are interested in building along with you or building on top of your platform and that's a really important step that we think needs to happen for crypto to flourish so we've surveyed folks like you know Vitalik Buterin who actually travels around the world a lot because you know he went out there to develop Ethereum communities in a lot of different countries in Asia he speaks Chinese and he actually has a very strong network in Asia so he's been able to kind of guide us in many of the Ethereum kind of 
folks in Asia, and that's been very helpful. But we also speak to local folks like, you know, Korea's Hash Team, which is a fund that's very focused on the technology on the blockchain side and has built a large presence in Korea and, you know, folks like those. So this guidebook shares many of the learnings from the team's diligence on the road and the resources and insights coming directly from the active community members and decision makers. So that's something that we think we are, we kind of take a lot of pride in because it's something that we think is really important. We have gotten a lot of good responses from it as well. So it sounds like you guys pick the brains of a lot of very influential people in the industry. So who are some of the intended audiences? I know you mentioned that just a little bit just earlier. Yeah, for sure. So audience primarily is the current active crypto community. We have crypto folks coming from the US, North America, Latin America, Europe, who are all very interested in kind of going to Asia. And there are lots of conferences that are happening all the time in Asia as well. So whenever someone plans their trip to Asia, you know, they go to Singapore for a crypto conference. You know, we encourage them. And I think they also do this, which is that they want to go try out and check out the other countries as well, because, you know, they're there and they're flying all the way there. It's they might as well make the trip worth it. So there are a lot of investors and developers and executives and, of course, lots of active traders who are actually very interested in kind of participating and learning about these different locales. I would say that the handbook is a primer and a tour guide. We highlight the regulatory environment in the various countries for you to kind of get an idea of what's going on, what is the regulatory backdrop, because that's still super important in many of these countries. The key insights on the local regions, you know, where should you go? You know, there's even recommended crypto coffee shops that you could check out. And there are large and key communities members that you need to meet and learn about. We found that, you know, this is just something that you could travel with you for a good debrief when you're on the plane and go get getting almost, you know, on your way there and actually kind of learn about what you're actually getting yourself into. So it sounds like a lonely planet for the crypto industry. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. That's what we're actually aiming for because I think it's it's just something that people ask us all the time. We get so many inbound questions about it and we're like, why don't we just formalize the entire thing and actually make it something that's you know accessible. The guidebook is free. You get to download it on, online and we wanted to you know use it to kind of focus and highlight the right folks who are pushing the industry along rather than you know people often relate Asia to scammy projects, speculation. But that is not all of it. And I think what we all always focused on is blockchain development, technology development, you know, where is this technology going in terms of global impact? And that's what we kind of highlight the type of folks who we highlighted also in the guidebook. And what are some of the main themes of the handbook? Is it just uh, like it's written in the title, the local ecosystems, trends and regulations? Yes, exactly. So for every country, we lay out the regulatory backdrop. So we highlight, you know, countries like China, Japan, Korea, Indonesia, Singapore, and, and I think like at least five others, you know, Thailand, Vietnam, were all, you know, up and coming countries whom I think are very interesting. And for folks who are actually already in crypto, they often are there to explore what's going on. But for folks who are outside of crypto, I think if you're interested in at least just learning about the communities, you know, on a high level, it would be, you know, China, Singapore, Japan, Korea. The inherent nature of crypto is that it's very open and folks who are actually in the community locally are very open and meeting great people. And, you know, we obviously want to bring in more folks that are outside of crypto into the space. So I think that's actually very accessible if you ever want to travel there and just kind of drop by the community centers or the physical spaces that folks are actually working out of.
So I think what we'll do is we'll dive in into the specific countries uh, or regions that have been mentioned. But before then, have you identified any common threads within Asia on cryptocurrency? It seems like uh, one thing is a lot of these countries have banned uh, ICOs or initial coin offerings. Yes, that's definitely true. And I think it's happening definitely across the world in a lot of ways because kind of regulators realize that, you know, ICOs, often this, the ICOs come out with, you know, pitching an idea and then kind of running away with folks' money or not actually delivering that idea. So I think from the high level, on, in the last six months, we first ran into like a prolonged bear market in the beginning of the year. And the market has since recovered then. And, you know, at least in Bitcoin, Ethereum, a lot of the altcoins, you know, which is coins that are, you know, not Bitcoin, Ethereum, are doing poorly. But I think that's a good thing because that's actually driving a lot of the kind of scammers who are, you know, looking to sell their tokens and pitch their tokens outside of the industry because they realize that, you know, the, the, the ICO wave is done completely. You know, there has been an IEO trend, which is initial exchange offering, where the tokens actually go through the exchanges, you know, Binance, Huobi, OKX, they go through these exchanges to list their tokens. And that, you know, that the exchanges in return help take a fee and then help them uh, distribute, you know, and, and, and kind of attract that global audience. But I think the general sense that I get is that a lot of people who, you know, have been in the space for some time who haven't really delivered and really focused on building are actually, we're seeing folks returning money from your initial raises, they're sunsetting their projects. And I think those who continue to be in the space now are actually really good actors and folks who are focusing on building out this decentralized ecosystem even further. So, so I think overall is a positive for the space. Mm -hmm. That sounds very positive indeed. And now I see that the first country and uh, that you talk about in your handbook is China. And you also split it up into mainland China and Hong Kong. So China is probably the most important market for cryptocurrency, of course. And they have banned uh, ICOs since 2017. And at the same time, they're also reducing Bitcoin mining towards zero. What are some of the other key trends in 2019, which you believe are the most important that our listeners should know? Yeah, I think one of the main things that we've been highlighting on Global Coin Research is the China Digital Currency Initiative. So, you know, I think that's super interesting. The Chinese government reportedly has been working on the Chinese digital currency for, for about five years now, and they finally have started disclosing more since the Libra announcement. So for folks who don't know much about Libra, it's the, the cryptocurrency project coming out of Facebook, which has been getting a lot of scrutiny and attention from regulators all over the world. We are not necessarily very bullish on Libra because of the way they've been so openly talking about this money initiative that seems very threatening to a lot of the regulatory, you know, from many countries. But at the same time, I think, you know, the China digital currency has been something that the central bank has been focusing on from China for a long time. And now they're, I think, it sounds like they're ready almost in in building, but you know, still delayed in terms of trying to decide how to actually physically roll out this digital currency for folks. If you can imagine, you know, you know, currently China already has most of folks using their WeChat Pay and Alipay. So for them, I think the experience won't be that different. But in the back end, what the People's Bank of China is trying to do is actually privatizing a lot of the businesses and institutions who are currently private companies 
and and they want them to roll out the People's Bank of China want them to roll out the digital currency first. Uh, so that's super interesting. And at the same time, I think a lot of the folks from the banking side in China are also going to benefit directly from the China's digital currency. It's not necessarily a cryptocurrency, and it's not necessarily a blockchain technology because the uh, the regulators have claimed that you know the blockchain technology is right now is currently not scalable enough to support the trillions of transactions that we're seeing in China. But at the same time, it's something that I think is just brings a lot of interest and, and, and eyeballs into this digital currency side. Mm-hmm. That does sound very interesting. And I see that in the handbook, you've also identified certain regulators in China that you think anyone who you know dabbles in Bitcoin and blockchain should know. Can you identify them for us? Why are they important to the ecosystem? Yeah, for sure. I think the regulators in China are very savvy and very forward-looking when it comes to crypto and digital currency. You know, I think most recently the CCTV, Chinese's China's primary TV channel, actually shared a tutorial session about what is Bitcoin and educating folks on Bitcoin. So I think they're very forward-looking and they think about, you know, how is Bitcoin going to play as a currency or, or asset in, you know, the global China economy. And, and to step back a little bit and going back to your question, I think the folks that are super important and have been really paying attention to this space are the Cyberspace Administration of China. They're in existence for a while and they talk to companies like Tencent and Alibaba to ensure that you know they are uh, adhered to the rules that the uh, Chinese government lays out, right? There's China's Banking and Regulatory Commission, and there's the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, uh, of course, and there's China's Central Bank. These folks all all have a say and have released messages about cryptocurrency and their opinions about the tokens. So I think that those guys are going to be continuously relevant and uh, playing even more of a bigger role in this digital currency that we're going to see uh, rolling out perhaps next year. And and you did separate Hong Kong into a separate uh, category on, on the contents. Are there some major differences? Is that why you differentiated Hong Kong and mainland China? Yeah, so I think Hong Kong has their own Securities Futures Commission that oversees a lot of the financial rulings, and they generally act pretty independently from China, at least in the crypto sense. I think what we're seeing is that, you know, they have always been warning folks about the dangers and risks of getting involved in cryptocurrency and, you know, the potential losses you could gain, you could make from ICOs. But their attitude generally, I think, is that you know, when a project comes into Hong Kong, they usually encourage them to speak to the regulators. And the regulators actually speak English, so it's a lot easier often to engage in a dialogue and actually ask them for their thoughts about, you know, your specific project or a specific exchange or fund that you're setting up. That's something that they encourage. And what they don't want to do is, you know, go go to learn about, you know, what you're doing from someone else and really frown upon that and knock on your door and tell you to stop what you're doing. That's something that they highly discourage and want folks to actually just approach them 
and communicate, which is a really good benefit. I think being, you know, in Hong Kong where you have a financial economic hub and the regulators are actually a lot more open to receiving and hearing about what you're doing. And they also have a sandbox. And that is something that I think is super important because uh, that lays out kind of the boundaries and, 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 and allow you to apply for the sandbox should you be an exchange or a fund for so that you could have a you know closer relationship with the regulators and also receive feedback in a more timely manner to learn about whether you know what you're doing is on the right track. Now that uh, Hong Kong has also banned ICOs, do you see Hong Kong following more steps that China has taken in tightening up regulations, etc.? So far, no. So, for example, what we're seeing during the recent Hong Kong protest, a lot of folks have actually taken cash out of China and then bringing it to the Bitcoin traders and the traders in Hong Kong and trying to trade it into Bitcoin. So what I'm seeing right now is that Hong Kong continues to be that, you know, safe zone for folks, you know, from uh, in terms of where they uh, they could feel comfortable, you know, taking their money out. And, and it's something that I think that that will continue to be the appeal of Hong Kong, unless you know, you know, after the post the the recent protest, China does become more strict and oversee more of the jurisdictions and the things that are happening in Hong Kong. I would say that that's also not something that I would exclude. And if we shift uh, our gaze a little bit to Japan and Korea. Now, there was a major theft of Bitcoin uh, in 2014 that happened in the Japanese market. And how has the Japanese cryptocurrency market changed after that? Yeah, the Japanese crypto market is super interesting because they've been arguably the, they were the earliest uh, cryptocurrency market that really kind of took off. And, you know, since the Mt. Gox hacked, I think that actually drew a lot more attention to crypto. And the, the retailers in crypto in Japan are super enthusiastic for cryptocurrency, especially in the payment side, because I think that, you know, they, Japan has been a country that's mostly focused on cash. But when you look at their payment systems, they actually accept lots of different kinds of payments and they have lots of different payment channels and, and services. So what they've been approaching crypto thus far, I think, has been on the payment side, or at least that's what they emphasize on. And I think in the last few years, you know, we've seen, you know, Mt. Gox getting hacked. And then also consecutively, there have been a number of other hacks in the local exchanges, such as CoinCheck. So that's been actually a kind of a discouragement to the regulators there, because they realize that, you know, they don't have the right type of framework in place to reinforce the the security within these exchanges. As a result, we're seeing kind of a plateaued enthusiasm for crypto as well, given the regulatory environment where the the, the folks are getting more serious about, you know, making sure that you have the right uh, security checks in place. A lot of the exchanges can't really pursue any innovations because they need to figure out their security and uh, security issues first before pursuing anything else. And at the same time, the, the Japanese financial 
of folks are also very hesitant about giving out new licenses to operate there. So for example, Coinbase has, uh, this US exchange has been trying to go into Japan for quite some time. They hired some teams there for about, you know, since two years ago and they still haven't gotten a license yet to operate. So if you can't operate, then you really don't have any presence within the local folks. Right. So that's the cryptocurrency market. What about how's the Japanese, the blockchain startup ecosystem? And what kind of Japanese enterprises are there in blockchain that's uh, a major trend, for example? Yeah, for sure. So I think some of the blockchain startups primarily have been focused on either, you know, I think the Ethereum community in, and the Ethereum generally has been pretty popular in, in Japan. That's where a lot of the startups are kind of building on top of. And for Ripple, a payment-based cryptocurrency, that's been very popular as well in, in Japan because of the kind of the overall draw into payments. And, and what folks also do with Ripple is that it's a very highly speculative token and very popular to speculate in the exchanges among the Japanese folks. I would say from a lot of the innovations we're seeing in Japan is that mostly it's focused on the crypto payment side. You know, they encourage folks like you could allow to buy Bitcoin with your cash cards, you know, a lot of those gift cards that that Japanese folks use to access lots of the you know, 7-Elevens or the convenience store or department stores that they also encourage you to buy Bitcoin have built solutions for those purchases. And then also Japanese enterprises have been pretty enthusiastic with crypto, but it remains to be seen what they actually build. Most of them, like you know, SBI, which is a large conglomerate, has gone into trading uh, and building exchange, and they also invest in a lot of overseas crypto projects. But thus far, we've seen that you know, projects like them or uh, companies like them or Line, which is uh, the largest messaging app in Japan, but which is an actually Korean company. They're also launching exchanges and tokens, but that's what we kind of see mostly on the trend side. So that segues well into my next question, which is who are the key players from the Korean startup space and the major enterprises involved in cryptocurrency in Korea? Yeah, so I think Korea is super interesting and it's actually a little bit more transparent and English friendly than Japan. So in Korea, we've seen you know folks setting up hacker houses that you know fosters a lot of the cryptocurrency technology building. This hacker house is called Nonce, and they have seventy people co-living and co-working together to build blockchain technology. And there is also Biddle Soul that actually tries to create a developer community and ecosystem in Korea to focus on blockchain technology. We've seen that you know there are enterprises such as Kakao Clayton. Uh, Kakao Talk obviously is the largest messaging app in Korea and they have built their own blockchain technology as well. It's very similar to Libra from Facebook. So I call Kakao the Asia Libra in many ways because you know they also have they're using proof of stake uh, consensus. They're also having formed association where many of the different conglomerates and businesses in Asia are acting as their validators. Kakao has gathered the Union Bank of the Philippines or some of the gaming players in Korea, as well as in Japan, actually, to participate in this association, like the way that Facebook has done with uh, some of the large tech companies. I forget what their names are. Some of the large tech companies that also serve as, you know, the decentralized validators for the blockchain. 
but most of the players I'd say still right now are exchanges that you know thrive in these spaces. Korea obviously is known for kimchi, which is very delicious, but they're also known for kimchi premium. Can you explain to our listeners what that means in the context of cryptocurrency? Yeah, for sure. So kimchi premium refers to the premium on cryptocurrency prices when folks are trading in Korea. So for example, recently, Global Coin Research interviewed an individual from a local exchange in Korea, and he mentioned that DAI, you know, the stablecoin, the, probably the, arguably the most popular by name of stablecoin, was trading for $4 on the Korean exchanges. So what that means is that a DAI, which, you know, inherently the name stablecoin means it's supposed to be stable and it's supposed to be staying around $1, ended up trading at $4 on the Korean exchange. So that's the premium, the $3 that we're seeing. And this individual is actually super embarrassed by it because he's like, you know, the Korean market is so enthusiastic, but they, they're they going out of control. And it's something that's supposed to be stable. Like, why would you pay $4 for a $1 stable coin? It's, it's kind of crazy. So that phenomenon is still happening now. And what we're seeing, and I think the underlying reason here is that there are limitations on how much money you can withdraw and take out from the local exchanges in Korea. And there are limitations on how much money you can move out of Korea. But Korea actually has one of the easiest fiat on ramps into the crypto exchanges. If you look at the other exchanges in Asia, there are actually many exchanges who just do crypto to crypto trading, but not fiat to crypto trading, because then you kind of run into trouble with the regulators and depending on the jurisdiction. But for Korea, they actually make it very easy for you to trade your, you know, your Korean won into cryptocurrency. And that actually creates a lot of liquidity in, and, and supply into the crypto exchanges, but then it's very hard to take out of the country and the exchanges. So that imbalance has created the kimchi premium that we continue to see today. And people still continue to make money out of the arbitraging that. And let's look at Indonesia. Now, Indonesia is the largest market in Southeast Asia. So can you talk a little bit about how the government is viewing both Bitcoin and blockchain in terms of just cryptocurrency in general? Yeah, Indonesia is a super interesting country. I actually never been myself and I, I'm hoping to go eventually. And what we're seeing and hearing on the ground is that Indonesian government kind of outrightly discourages buying and trading cryptocurrencies. I think primarily also because Indonesia doesn't have a financial savvy population. The regulators view cryptocurrencies as a very high risk and folks, you know, just often step into kind of these scammy projects that go into Indonesia and preaches, you know, lots of money to be made on the exchanges when they hold on to any of these tokens. So primarily what we're seeing when people are trading, they're actually trading Bitcoin and that's the majority of the focus for the country. And I think that's actually also an indication that the market is quite young in, in adopting cryptocurrency, given that the country is so fragmented and you know there are so many different islands in Indonesia. I think it's a very hard market to target for a lot of the folks who are trying to go into Asia. You know, I think there are projects that are there to try to build presence, but at the same time, there isn't as much of a strong technology or engineering local ecosystem. So folks, it becomes less attractive. And also given the kind of the regulatory overhang, it seems like it's not that easy to actually just go in and sell your project essentially. So who are the existing key players that people can get in touch with from the startup space there or who are the major enterprises involved? So a lot of the local folks are a lot of the media uh, media companies that are built out there to provide information on the cryptocurrency space. And in terms of projects, we see mostly local folks coming from Singapore who kind of have an understanding of Southeast Asia. So, you know, Pundi X, for example, is a physical 
crypto payment system. So think about Square and uh, the Square payments that they sell into small business retailers. As um, Pundix also has something like that, and they have been trying to introduce it into Indonesia, but it's been a difficult market given the regulatory environment. Otherwise, we see a lot of communities, crypto communities forming, and that's mostly you know physical spaces and just kind of meetups that people get together and exchange ideas and share what they're seeing. And those are folks like, you know, Blockchain Zoo, Indonesia, Blockchain Space. So right now, I think the primary focus has still been trading and speculations. So we haven't seen much of the other kind of types of prominent entities forming. And you mentioned Singapore, which is definitely my new favorite country uh, ever since I visited this September. The folks there should be such a great time. So how is Singapore looking at regulations in the cryptocurrency market? Yeah, Singapore is definitely my favorite country as well, given all the food that's there. And I always look forward to go back. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely it's a very popular fintech hub. And I think one of the distinctions between Singapore and many of the other Asian countries is that the regulators, specifically the monetary authority of Singapore, is very savvy and very forward-looking in that they are also transparent about what they're seeing and actually release it in terms of guidelines very quickly to folks who are trying to figure out what to do and where to kind of operate and land when they start a company. So, for example, when the token issuances first came out, they started classifying the tokens into different kinds of tokens that are out there, such as utility tokens, security tokens. And they show that they're very aware of these types, different types of tokens that are out there. And they gave very clear examples, you know, what is allowed, what is not allowed, what is encouraged, what is not encouraged through these guidelines. So I think that's something we don't see very much in any of the other countries. Even in the U.S., it's very hard because often you're submitting your paperwork and your filings to the SEC, but you don't know when you hear back. And they usually push back in terms of their responses. And also, at the same time, they are not transparent with you, like, um, you know, what, what kind of category should you belong into. So, so I think what's been really a standout for Singapore is that the monetary authority folks actually engage with the community and they, you know, they are very aware of what's going on globally. They also go to all these crypto conferences that happens out of Singapore and speak at them. So I think that's something that's really important and something I hope more countries do that. Do you think that's why a lot of these major cryptocurrency players like Binance are based in Singapore? Is that why they chose Singapore? Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of the players definitely in Asia, you know, you want to, most folks like to register in Singapore given the friendly regulations and attitude towards this. But at the very same time, I think they realize that Singapore as a country is still quite small in population, even though there are obviously a lot of highly educated folks. But in terms of a market to tackle for growth, it seems like actually a, a less priority because of the fact that you know most folks are more financially savvy. They're not going to be able to just be engaged with your scammy project as as soon as they, as soon as you land. Not not saying that you know all <laughs> countries, all the other Asian countries are like yes. that, but it's a lot easier to do so because a lot of the folks are not financially savvy. Binance specifically has uh, received an investment from a venture fund associated with Tomasek, which is the sovereign wealth, wealth fund from Singapore. Yeah, so, so they received an investment from Vertex, which is a fund, fund affiliated with Tomasek. Who we interviewed in our last episode, so you can definitely check that out as well, to our listeners, of course. Yes. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, they received that investment and, you know, they I think they realized that they need to find, specifically for Binance, that they need to find a, 
an Asian ally to really, you know, find foothold at. Because previously, Binance has been, you know, registering out of Malta, of Jersey. All of these countries have been, you know, very welcoming to crypto, but at the same time, they're not a, a, like a stamp of approval in the developing countries, in the developed countries, sorry, to indicate that Binance, you know, is, is, is a good actor or is trying to do focusing on developed countries. You know, Binance now has actually launched a U.S. Uh, exchange as well. And I think, you know, the team is primarily based out of Singapore and China. But I think Singapore definitely is a great and safe hub for many folks who are trying to look to find a foothold in Asia. And you also uh, have mentioned Taiwan and Thailand and Vietnam in the handbook. Uh, are there interesting, some interesting facts that you want us to know about these three places? Yeah, I think Thailand has been a country that we follow very early on and we've written pretty extensively about uh, very early on because I think it's such an interesting country where the Thailand SEC has been focusing on kind of advancing cryptocurrency and, and, and taking very large risks and actually encouraging exchanges and projects to come to the country. It's something that I have never seen Thailand kind of acting because previously I felt like, you know, Thailand has been up and coming, you know, financial hub, but at the same time, the, 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 the regulators in, in Thailand now seem super aggressive about, you know, encouraging trading and project and innovation there. So I think that's really interesting. I folk, encourage folks to check that out. And then Vietnam is also a very, it's a growing technology hub, actually, for a lot of folks. So Korean exchanges and projects are actually going out there to recruit developers as well as find users for these exchanges. Vietnam's a small country, but it's like the seventh most active country in crypto trading. So that I think that says a lot about, you know, the folks there and the audience there. Yeah, and I guess that wraps up our little tour of Asia crypto. Um, but of course, uh, we couldn't have covered all the contents of the handbook in a little less than an hour of an interview. So where can folks find you and where can folks find this small handbook? Yeah, for sure. So they could find us at globalcoinresearch.com. For our handbook, we actually pin it to our Global Coin Research Twitter account. So you can find us on there and follow us too at Global Coin Research on Twitter. So it's spelled with Global Coin, R-S-R-C-H. Hopefully folks can find that useful and let us know if you have any feedback. And we're looking to release further additions on an annual basis because obviously, as you know, cryptocurrency space moves very quickly. There will be lots of new things to update on. And uh, I think, you know, we obviously are open to feedback and comments. Mm -hmm. And you guys also have a podcast, right? Yes, we do. We have a global coin podcast where we interview a lot of folks, not just folks from Asia, actually. Now also we have expanded into folks in the U.S. as well, because we do really want to capture that global perspective from folks from the East as well as the West. And if you found the content of this episode enjoyable, you can check out the Global Coin Research podcast. And you can also check out previous episodes of Analyze Asia, specifically episodes 294 and 287, published in April and March, where Joyce came on to the show to talk about blockchain, cryptocurrency regulations across Asia Pacific, as well as the story behind Binance. And as always, you can find us on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya, and everywhere that plays podcasts. 
please leave us a review when you have the opportunity to do so, so others can discover this great show. And of course, any feedbacks and suggestions are always welcome. You can tweet to us on Twitter at AnalyzeAsia or email me at carol at analyze.asia. Thank you so much again, Joyce, for coming onto the show, and I'm sure we will speak again soon. Thank you so much for having me again.